This is a CBC Podcast. Ian McEwan has written more than a dozen novels and screenplays over a span of 40 years. Here are two you might have heard of. The Children Act, Atonement. He's prolific, a touchstone of British culture. Sheila Fennessy, she finds him irritating. I got halfway through The Children Act and then bagged it as I was A, bored and B, irritated by his tendency to want to be an expert in every field. Poor Ian. But he has one novel, Sweet Tooth, that began to win her over. Sheila knew this story because, in a way, she'd lived it. I'm Macy Rowe. This is The Doc Project. Camilla Gibb is an acclaimed Canadian author, and she's Sheila's daughter. Today's story follows Camilla's quest to unlock the secrets of her mother's past. She'll take it from here, and it starts with her mom's book club. My mother used to be part of a small book club in Cabbage Town, Toronto. In the club, each member took turns giving presentations about the selected books. One late fall evening in 2014, it was my mother's turn. The book she'd chosen was Sweet Tooth by the British author Ian McEwan. The novel features a young heroine named Serena Frome who works for MI5. My mother got up in front of the group of about 15 people, took a sip of Pinot Grigio, and began her presentation. Ian McEwan is not my favorite author, and I have enjoyed his books less and less over the years. This is my mother, Sheila. I read Sweet Tooth a few years ago, but must admit I enjoyed it far more on a second reading for tonight's presentation. I worked at MI5 in London from 1961 to 1967. The group was floored. None of them had any idea my mother had ever worked for MI5. MI6 is where James Bond worked. James Bond and Serena Frome might be fictional creations, but MI6 and MI5 certainly aren't. Both are agencies of the British government. MI6 focuses on foreign concerns and MI5 on the domestic. They both engage in espionage, counter-espionage, subversion, sabotage, and counter-terrorism. How did I come to work at MI5? Nothing as glamorous as Serena Frome's recruitment occurred. Having returned to England after working in Sweden for a few months, I needed to find a new job and went to an employment agency in London. They sent me for a few interviews, but none of the positions... She didn't give much away in terms of detail that night, but she did take some pleasure in contrasting her experiences with those of Serena Frome. In the book, McEwen's heroine is recruited by her older lover, a history professor, while she's studying at Cambridge. My mum didn't go to university. She went to an employment agency. And there she was told there was an opening at the war office. This was the euphemism they used at the time. It was so secretive that she got the job without ever being directly interviewed. Unlike this unsuspecting group of book club goers, I've always known my mother worked at MI5. I can't remember when or how I ever found out. I've just never not known. But she's never talked about it in anything but the broadest strokes. As a kid, I would prod my mother for details, and she'd mostly shrug me off, at best maybe toss me some innocuous morsel, and then abruptly change the subject. I know she worked as a secretary in the London headquarters for a couple of years, 
before spending two years on an overseas posting in Trinidad. She was promoted to junior officer after her return. But as I said, broad strokes, not what she did or for whom or what intelligence or security cases she might have been involved with. But then my mother's discreet and reserved about most things. She maintains a quiet distance and doesn't give a lot away. Sometimes she doesn't give anything away. Like how I didn't realize my parents had separated. Nobody told me at the time. My father just seemed to be on an awfully long business trip, which lasted about nine months. Being her daughter fostered a fertile imagination in me. I've tended to use that imagination to fill in the gaps. I do often wonder how much I've gotten wrong. As a kid, I was convinced she must have been embroiled in some high-stakes cases of international intrigue. I was a child of the 70s. I grew up on Pink Panther and James Bond movies, and I could just picture my mother. She was amazingly beautiful and circumspect to a fault in a starring role. She would have made the perfect operative, a Bond girl to rival any other. The mythology isn't entirely of my own making. When I was a child, my mother would pick up a combination lock and hold it to her ear and slowly start turning the dial clockwise, then counterclockwise, and clockwise again, and then miraculously, she'd pull the lock open. Why would a secretary know how to do this? What other spy moves does she know? The fact that she told her book club as much as she did makes me feel like finally my mother might open up to me. She's 80 now, so maybe the wall can come down. Maybe I can finally understand something more about this inscrutable woman, crack the code that has kept her at this distance my whole life. It's a bright, crisp fall weekend, and my daughter and I are staying with my mom at her house in the country. I'm here to interrogate her. She's agreed to be questioned, though she hasn't exactly agreed to answer my questions. There's a reason for this. I had to sign the Official Secrets Act. Did you know you were going to have to do that? No. The Official Secrets Act is a document that all British intelligence personnel have to sign, both when they start the job and when they leave it. Well, they just, they just ask you to sign it, and so I, I signed it. Because Do you remember what you were being asked? No. What it was asking you? Never to reveal... Well, not to talk about where you worked or what you did, yeah. To anyone? To anyone, yes. So you couldn't tell your friends? No, I couldn't tell my friends, and I didn't tell my friends. Did your mother know? I'm not sure. Did your brother know? I don't think so. You had a boyfriend? Oh, yeah, I had various boyfriends, yeah. Any of them stick? Um, well, the last one, because I married the last one. So you met him while you were working at MI5? Did he know where I worked? Mm. Do you know? I don't know if he did or he didn't. So what was daily life like at going into MI5 and working there? What, was, what were your responsibilities? I can't talk about that. This has always been the way. I can't talk about that. Can you tell me who you worked for? No, I can't. Can you tell me how big the office was? Well, there were several different offices scattered in several buildings in London. Did each office have responsibility for a different area of intelligence? Well, it was divided up into different departments of responsibility. Like, can you give me an example of a department name? 
Personnel. <laughs> Christ, I'm getting nowhere. But unbeknownst to her, I have a plan B at the ready. Her grandmother wouldn't shut the door in the face of her eight-year-old granddaughter, would she? At the end of the day, my mother is sitting in the living room having a scotch and soda and doing a cryptic crossword. I'm in the kitchen with my daughter getting her up to speed on the plan. Why does Mama have this big microphone? You're recording something about what my grandma was doing when she was a spy. You see, the secrecy and intrigue around Sheila's past now spans generations. Just like me, my daughter knows, but doesn't know. How do we know she was a spy? Well, duh, your mom. You know her job. She's very mysterious about it, Eva. You know that, right? She won't actually tell me what she did. I know. She won't tell us anything about it. Do you think we should ask her? Sure. All right. Let's go see her. We creep into the living room. We're ambushing. Sheila. Sheila. I say to get her attention. And then it's over to my eight-year-old, who gets straight to it. Did you have a code name? I did not, no. Nothing as glamorous as that. Are you lying to me? No, I don't lie. Or are you keeping a secret? Possibly. Okay. Well, so much for that. I try approaching her from another direction. Maybe she'll talk about Trinidad. My mom lived and worked there for two years in the mid-60s. At the time, it was a secret that MI5 even had an office in Trinidad. Part of a bigger secret that MI5's reach extended to all of its colonial territories. This didn't even become public knowledge until the 1990s. But I've always known. And Sheila, of course, told her book club too. We worked from offices in the British High Commission, Port of Spain. There was a story, probably apocryphal, that young female staff heading overseas to hot climates were given a pep talk by personnel prior to departure about proper behaviour and advised not to lie naked under a fan. What are the implications of lying naked under a fan? Well, you were exposing yourself. (laughs) We thought it sounded quite attractive. (laughs) But that's as far as she goes in the way of detail. What kind of training or background debriefing info were you given, either about um, working overseas or working in this kind of clandestine capacity or Trinidad specifically? Well, I can't talk about the work-related stuff at all, no. So, and what was your position? What was your official title? I was a secretary. I suppose you're not going to tell me what sort of cases you were keeping an eye on. Absolutely not thought it was worth a try. (laughs) I'd suspected I wasn't going to get much from her, but I'd done my homework, so I started throwing out the names of some of the trouble spots in the region at the time, hoping to catch her off guard. If I say something like Cuban Missile Crisis as an area of interest or an area of concern, do you have a response? No. Bay of Pigs? No, No comment. Black Panthers? Nothing I know about. Grenada is invaded, not until 1983, Mm -hmm. but I wondered if that had been an interest or concern. I don't remember. The woman is a steel trap. But the next place I mentioned produces an interesting reaction. British Guyana. Oh, she's getting up. She's leaving the room. (laughs) I've clearly hit upon something. 
but she's walked away. I'm not going to get anything more from her. I need another way in. Casey here. Coming up, Camilla brings out the big guns. And you can see photos of Sheila from the 60s looking peak 007. Those are on our Instagram. You can follow us. We're at CBC The Doc Project. My name is Calder Walton. Um, I'm an intelligence historian um, at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Since Sheila has given me no more facts than she's given to her book club, I decide to pull in an expert, someone who will give details on what a woman like Sheila could have been doing for MI5. A few years ago, I helped to write MI5's authorized history, marking its 100-year centenary anniversary. And my first book was called Empire of Secrets, British Intelligence, the Cold War and the Twilight of Empire. Calder Walton knows his terrain intimately. I start off by telling him about what happened when I mentioned British Guyana to my mother. She actually got up off the couch and walked away. Good Lord. Whereas normally I get, uh, no comment, can't remember, things along those lines. So that's very interesting. So this this clearly struck a a, a nerve um, with her. What do you think MI5 was up to during that specific period? So she was there 64 to 66. Well, almost certainly the... um, the primary focus of your mum's work would have been related to British Guyana, um, which was the nearby British territory in uh, South America. Um, And British Guyana uh, was really one of the most difficult British territories in the Cold War. It was a place where Britain and America and Soviet intelligence were all busily working away, trying to influence the future of that territory. Mm. As Calder goes on to explain the complicated workings of both MI5 and the CIA, investigating suspected communists in British Guyana, I'm realizing that my mother was at the center of something crucially important. In the time period where your mother was working in MI5, the overwhelming concern was finding Soviet agents even within um, Britain's own intelligence services. This is the age of the five Cambridge spies and mole hunts uh, that were really um, tearing Britain's intelligence services apart from within. My mother was working in a den of double agents. For most of my mother's tenure at MI5, she was a secretary. I asked Calder, what did being a secretary actually mean? So when we say the word secretary, that really doesn't encapsulate the importance of the job. The backbone of Britain's intelligence services, like those of other countries, relied on good record keeping. And there was this was from the outset that the, the sort of the essential component of MI5 was its card registry. And from the earlier stages, uh, the people that ran uh, the card registry that was run by um, female staff. Ah, by uh, the secretaries. This registry was a card catalog with the names of the people and organizations that MI5 was spying on. So a secretary like my mom would know exactly who was under surveillance and why. It seems to me like she was right in the thick of things during anything but a quiet period for MI5. (laughs) 
When I was my daughter's age, I used to listen to all my mother's old records from Trinidad. They felt worlds away from the life we inhabited. They were upbeat and fun, often with naughty lyrics, and they hinted at a wholly different chapter in my mother's life. The MI5 files from the period my mom was in Trinidad haven't been released. The last declassified files from the region are dated 1961, so Calder can't offer me any more detail. But there's someone else who might. An 81-year-old woman who now lives on a quiet residential street in Cheltenham, England. Her name is Judy Stone, and she's an old friend of my mother's from Trinidad who moved to the UK in the 1970s. Tell me about your friendship with Judy. Well, Judy, she had been friends of my predecessor. So I was introduced through my predecessor, and we became friends. Did she know where you worked? Um, she must have done. If Judy did know, that's more than my mother's own family knew. I start by sending her an email, asking her about that time, and she confesses that her memory of those years is mostly, and I quote, a happy, sunny, sandy, rummy haze. I decide to get these two old friends together on the phone and see what they can reconstruct. Hello. Hello, is that Judy? Yes, it is. It's Camilla. Hello, Camilla. It's so wonderful to hear your voice finally. Yes, it's great to hear you too. I've never actually met Judy. But I've seen photos and heard many stories over the years. And I'm taking you back 56 years then, in your memories. You're certainly taking me back a long way. (laughs) I understand that you knew Sheila's predecessor. Oh, I knew all the MI5 girls. I'm amazed by how casually she says this, as if it wasn't a mystery to anyone as to who they were and why they were there. Was it an open secret that... They, these women worked for MI5? Oh, yes. Yes, I, I think everybody knew. But, well, n- you know, we didn't ask them about their work. Uh, we, we didn't expect them to tell us, and we had a great deal else to think about. We <laughs> certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I did find that in Trinidad that nobody pried. Nobody said, so what do you actually do? You know, they weren't interested in other people's work. This was a place that was play. That's right. And when you left your office or wherever you worked, that was it. You put it behind you, and you went off to do fun things. The fun things. This is what mattered to them. They were clearly serious about their socializing. This is what they remember most. And you took a trip to Tobago as well. We (laughs) did. This is where you rode the donkey. Yes. I think you... Were you buying this donkey for your stepbrothers or something like yes, that? Yes, I was. Um, right. I must have been out of my mind, not <laughs> thinking of all the trouble it would be giving my father. Speaking of trouble, I have to ask them about men. There seemed to be an awful lot of boyfriends. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of boyfriends. <laughs> a lot of them were seemed to be naval officers, too. Well, yeah, because ships, na- British naval sh- ships would come in and dock in Port of Spain. And did, and did the, so these naval officers would be uh, there in port for one night? Or? No, no, no. They were usually there for a week or so, weren't they, yes. Judy? And then the ships would come back. And did you switch them up? Like when the ship came back, were you like, hmm, maybe I'm moving on to the Joe? 
You wouldn't change officers on one ship, but you would certainly no. go out with officers on different ships. Absolutely. Different officers on different yeah. ships. <laughs> and how else did they spend their apparently ample free time? There would be picnics on the beach. We would have a crowd there at night. It was lovely at night because often the waves were phosphorescent. And that was just beautiful. And people would come out of the water and they'd be gleaming, dripping, (laughs) gleaming drops all over the place. It was so pretty. Yeah. And it was great fun. This is such a beautiful image. It's so vivid in Judy's recollection. As little insight as it offers about my mother's work for MI5, their reminiscing offers me something even better an exhilarating portrait of a really special time in their lives. The sun and the fun of the Trinidad posting were never going to last forever. So after two years, my mother returned to work in London. She did come back to a promotion, though, progressing up the ladder of a career that held obvious promise. She's rather modest about it. Here's how she put it to her book club. After four years toiling as a secretary, I was thrilled to be promoted to junior assistant officer. And at the age of 26, I had my own dingy office and a shared secretary to do the basic toiling. But after this promotion, she only stayed at MI5 for another year. And I wonder, why would she give all that up? In my conversation with Calder Walton, the intelligence expert, he tells me that this isn't adding up for him either. Well, I think that was a big big step in um, someone's career within MI5 to go from support staff to um, essentially on the path to becoming a a desk officer. The the, the missing piece of this story for me is why your mum decided to not continue working for MI5 in 1967. It sounded like her career there was really on um, on the upward trend. Pouring over a timeline at my kitchen table, trying to make sense of this very partial portrait of my mother's years with MI5. She left, again signing the Official Secrets Act, this time on her way out the door, in December of 1967. It suddenly hits me like the proverbial ton of bricks. I'd never done the math before. My mother would have been seven months pregnant when she left MI5, with me, because I was born in February 1968. I'm actually implicated in this story in a way I'd never realized. I was there in the MI5 offices with her in those last months. I may well also be the reason for the end of her career. I asked her what she really felt about leaving MI5 pregnant with me. Did you feel at all conflicted about that? Not at all. You were quite content to leave work behind? Uh, Yeah, at that time, absolutely, yes. Mm Mm-hmm. But you enjoyed working. I did, yes. But I, you know, I enjoyed not working too. <laughs> well, doing different work. You don't remember if you imagined, oh, one day I'll come back. No, I don't think I thought that. No, I thought I have another job to do now. The raising of children. Mm-hmm. The whole MI5 chapter of my mother's life seems such a glaring contrast to everything that happened after. It makes me wonder what kind of life she envisioned for herself when she was a young woman. Before MI5 even came into the picture, I asked her about this too. 
Did you have a sense of what your goals were in life? And Yeah, I wanted to meet a nice guy and get married. <laughs> Pathetic. And then give up your job and have children? Probably. <laughs> Sorry about the nice guy part. <laughs> I'm referring to my father here. Had my mother gone on to have a happy life as a wife and mother, then maybe I would be able to digest the idea of her giving up her career more easily. But that's not what happened. My father proved to be a complicated, mentally ill narcissist with quite a cruel streak. And he couldn't hold on to a job, not in England, not in Canada. So my mother went back to work after five years at home with us, taking a job she knew, that of secretary. She became the sole breadwinner, and soon enough, a single parent. I think of all those years, pulling on pantyhose, slipping into heels every morning, only to come home at the end of a long day to cook for two largely unhelpful children. Did you ever feel like, I don't know, in hindsight, ooh, I left this very glamorous career? But she won't even let me hold on to that fantasy. It was interesting. I wouldn't say it was glamorous. But she did have one last act of rebellion, shocking her own mother. I know my mother was absolutely horrified that I was working when I was pregnant. First of all, shocked that I would work when I was married. (laughs) Because, of course, she didn't. When she got married, she stopped working. And then totally horrified that I would work when I was pregnant. And did you feel quite defiant? Totally. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) What did you say to her? I don't remember what I said to her, but I just thought to myself, I'll show you. My mother sounds so triumphant, I have to laugh. It just shows how strong-willed she is how clear and determined she is in her decisions. This lessens the guilt of my arrival heralding the end of the most exciting part of her life. She made that choice. A couple of weeks after I last interviewed my mother, she confessed that she did, in fact, have one regret about leaving MI5. This is her on speakerphone. I felt sorry that I would no longer be privy to all the secrets. I might never know all the secrets either, but they no longer seem to be the point. Her ability to keep them tells me so much more about who she is. She's utterly faithful, determined, loyal, a kind of essential integrity that allows me to see her reserved differently now. Camilla Gibb. That doc was produced by Camilla Gibb and Jennifer Warren. It was edited by Julia Poggle and me, AC Rowe. We have photos of Sheila from Trinidad at the height of her MI5 days. And yeah, she straight up looks like a spy. Go to the website. You will see what I mean. We are at cbc.ca slash docproject. The Doc Project is produced by Julia Poggle, Allison Cook, Kent Hoffman, and me. Althea Manassin is our digital producer. Our senior producer, Jennifer Warren, has absconded to Q for the next while, so you can check out her work over there. In the meantime, Julia Poggle will be filling in as senior. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.